Do you know we've been working our way this summer through our favorite Bible stories? Favorite Bible stories? We have two weeks left, this week and next week, and then we will jump back into roaming through Romans, meandering through Romans. So this week, we're going to talk about a guy named Samson. Samson is one of the most famous people in the Bible. Almost everybody's heard of Samson. If you haven't heard of Samson, you will certainly will after this morning. So we're going to be in Judges 13 through 16. We are going to take a very fast journey through the life of Samson. When did Samson live? Samson was discussed in a book called the Judges. Remind you a little bit about the book of Judges. We'll start with Genesis. God created, now let's fast forward. The people of Israel left. Egypt wandered around, conquered the promised land. Moses died, Aaron died. Finally, Joshua dies. And finally, the elders who were with Joshua die. And then we enter into the book of Judges. And the book of of Judges is a story of the people of Israel living in the promised land on an ongoing cycle of disobeying the Lord, being restored to the Lord, disobeying the Lord, restoring the Lord. So the book of Judges occurs between Joshua and when we get to uh, King David and King Saul in 1 Samuel. So it's Israel living in the promised land without a king, going through cycles of disobedience. And here's kind of how the cycle would go. The people of Israel would disobey God. Some foreign invader would come in and make life terrible. They would cry out to the Lord, God, we're so sorry. And he would send a judge to save them from their invader. They would live faithful to the Lord till the judge died, and then they would rebel against the Lord again. And then they would cycle over and over and over again, doing this in the book of Judges. Generally, two ideas in the book of Judges about this cycle. Number one, their rebellion gets worse and worse and worse over the course of the time in the book of Judges. As you're getting through the book of Judges, it's getting uglier, not prettier. Secondly, the quality of the judges that come forward gets lower and lower and lower. First couple of judges, they're pretty good guys. The last few judges are not really high-quality individuals. The last judge is a guy named Samson. And we'll explain in a little bit how the Lord could use a man such as Samson. The title of the message today is Unwanted, and I'm going to explain you why I titled it that way, because I want to give you the opportunity as we work through the life of Samson to maybe identify some of these key characteristics. Unwanted, a deliverer who doesn't want to save, a people who don't want saving. That's Samson's life. A deliverer who doesn't want to save, a people who don't want saving. It's a match made in heaven, so to speak. So in, the, in this time of history, in the life of Israel, this is one of the most spiritually dark times in, his, in Israel's history. And the deliverer that shows up on the scene reflects that darkness. Samson, in many ways, is just merely a symptom of what was going on in Israel as a whole. People pursuing their own ends, doing what was right in their own eyes because there was no one to lead them. In fact, in Samson's life, when we look at all of the other judges in the book of Judges, what did I, you remember the cycle I just told you? Sin, then what do they do when then there's an invasion? And then what do the people of Israel do? Cry out to the Lord. Never happens in Samson's story. That never happens. There's no cry out to the Lord from the people. They're being invaded and they're being conquered by the Philistines. There's no cry out to the Lord. In fact, I'll show you in a few minutes. They weren't that interested in being delivered. 
And then the deliverer comes to save this people who's not terribly interested in being saved, and he's actually not terribly interested in saving them. And this is all a reflection of the time in history that was being lived, people doing what was right in their own eyes. What could we possibly learn in a passage of Scripture, in fact, four chapters of Scripture, of a deliverer who doesn't want to save a people who don't want saving? Here's what we learned. I'm going to give you the point. That way, if you have to leave, you've got it. Ready? God is faithful to his covenant promises, even to people who don't want those covenant promises. God is faithful to his covenant promises, even to a people who don't want them. And God delivers even with the deliverer seeking his own selfish ends only. What we discover in the life of Samson is God really is that faithful. To save a people who don't want saving from a guy who doesn't want to save them. God really is that faithful to his covenant promises. Samson is born, that is described in chapter 13, All I want to tell you from that chapter in chapter 13 of Judges is that God told his mother and dad that he was to be a Nazarite from birth. What that means is he was to be set apart for the Lord from the moment of his conception. What does it mean to be a Nazarite? It it means a person would voluntarily as an adult worship the Lord by taking a vow as a Nazarite. It was a way of honoring God, thanking God, recognizing who God is by taking a a voluntary vow to not drink wine, not touch dead bodies, and to not cut your hair. And the person would take this vow for a period of time. And so for a period of time, they wouldn't drink wine, wouldn't eat grapes, wouldn't eat raisins, wouldn't touch a vine, and they wouldn't go near a dead body even if a near relative died. They wouldn't be able to go to the funeral because you can't be in the same room as the dead body as the Nazarite. And they would grow their hair out. At the end of that vow period, they would go to the tabernacle. They would offer an offering, maybe make a a donation. They would shave their head as a way of demonstrating their vow of of being a Nazarite was over. They had honored the Lord with their vow. And so now they could return to hanging out with dead bodies and drinking wine. I don't know what these people were into, but that's what they would do. What do you want to do this weekend? Go to a funeral and drink. Okay, whatever. So what's different about Samson is he was a Nazarite from birth. His mom was told not to drink wine when she was uh, pregnant with him. He was told never to cut his hair, and he was to be a Nazarite from his birth as a deliverer for the people of Israel. So we pick up the story in chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah among the Philistines, and he, he saw a girl he was interested in. I don't know much about Samson, but what interested Samson? She was physically attractive to him. I don't know that he was looking for a lot more. It didn't seem like he was looking for intelligent or engaging conversation, somebody to challenge him to be a better man. He was looking for somebody that was attractive to him. She was a Philistine, no matter. He goes to his dad. Dad, I found a girl I want to marry. She's a Philistine. Dad gets a little bit annoyed, but doesn't protest too much. God is going to use this as a way of beginning God's Uh, work to uh, annoy and facilitate overcoming the Philistines. So mom, dad, and Samson are going to go down and do a little meet and greet. So on the way, they're walking through a vineyard. How is that a problem? Does that throw any red flags up in your mind? He's a Nazarite. Well, that's not a problem. You can walk through a vineyard. What do you do when you walk through a vineyard? Why do you go through a vineyard when you're traveling from your home to another land? Well, the law makes it very clear why you walk through a vineyard. 
Because the law tells you that when you're walking through somebody's field, whether it be a grain uh, field or it be a vineyard, you can eat what you can pick with your hand, but you can't carry a bucket. You take a bucket and pick your neighbor's grapes, now you're stealing. You walk through your neighbor's field, pick a couple of grapes on the way to keep you refreshed. That's not a problem. The reason you walk through a field on your way somewhere is so you can have a snacky poo. That's the whole point. And if Samson's going to have a snack as a Nazarite, he should be walking through a grain field. But he doesn't care, and we'll see this over the course of time. While they're walking through the, the vineyard, his parents have been separated from him, a lion attacks him, comes roaring at him. The Spirit of the Lord gives him supernatural strength. And the Bible tells us that he tears the lion like you would tear a young goat. So no, all of you are going, oh, oh, like that. Oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. I don't know how you tear a young goat. I don't know on what occasion you would say, you know what I need to do? I need to tear a young goat. I didn't, obviously, what the Bible is telling us is he dispatched this lion with the same level of ease that any person butchering a goat for dinner would. Not a big deal. When a person goes to butcher their goat for dinner, they're not worried about their life. They're just going to go make dinner. And that's the same level of ease that he dispatched this lion. He doesn't tell his parents about it. They go and have the meet and greet, and they leave, and they've had a good time. Now it's time for the wedding. And so they head down for the wedding. On the way, he decides to check on the lion carcass. Why? I don't know. What do you want to do? When he arrives at the, at the, the lion's carcass, inside the lion, honeybees have created a hive, and there is a great a honeycomb in there. And he decides that sounds delicious. And of course, in fact, in many ways, this is exciting because what is the land, promised land called to the people of Israel on their way there? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Honey is always a sign of blessing. And Samson sees that. What's the downside? It's in a lion carcass. I don't know why honeybees would make a hive in a lion carcass. That seems a little bit unusual to me. What's even more unusual to me is the wording that's used, at least in the English translation, when he retrieves the honey. I don't know if it says this in your translation of the Bible. Mine says this. He scraped out the honey. Ugh. That's nasty. If I was going to get honey out of a lion carcass, I would get just enough, and I'd make sure there was a nice honey barrier between my hand and carcass. I don't want any lion carcass in my honey. That's kind of a rule. It's kind of a thing I live by. So he scrapes out the honey, and he eats it, and it's tasty because it's honey with a little bit of a hint of lion. A little bit of, sort of on the back of the nose is where you catch that lion. So then he takes it to his parents and he offers them some of the honey. He doesn't tell them where he got it because that's disgusting. And he offers them the honey. But again, thinking back to this Nazarite vow, he is in a cavalier fashion. Cavalier fashion, uh, going up to a dead body and a corpse and retrieving that uh, honey, even from what would be considered an unclean uh, animal. So he retrieves the honey and they make their way down to the wedding and it's going to be a great wedding feast and he has 30 companions assigned to him and his duty is going to be to provide for his companions their clothing for the wedding, which of course he has none. So he gives them this riddle in verse 14 of Judges 14. He says, if you can solve this riddle, I'll give you 30 sets of clothing. If you can't solve the riddle, you have to give me 30 sets of clothing. And here's the riddle, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. What a weird riddle. But that's what he says, and they agree to the terms of it. So for the course of this feast, seven days, 
They have told his fiance, if we can't solve his riddle and we have to buy him his clothes, we will burn you and your household in your house. That's how that's going to go. We're going to kill you. So his fiance spends the feast crying. If you're getting married and you're at the reception and she's crying, bad sign. And she spends the whole feast crying and crying. Tell me the riddle. Why won't you tell me? Well, finally on the last day, and we're gonna, this is a, something we're going to see a lot in Samson's life, he gives up the riddle and gives her the information. She then shares it with the companions. And the solution to the riddle is in verse 18. They came to him and say, well, what is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? They solved the riddle. Honey came out of a lion because he had retrieved honey on the way. And then he said them this poem. I need to just make sure we understand, guys, fellas. This is not a verse that you write in an anniversary card. I just, some of you guys, I never know what verse to write in there. You do not write this because uh, I don't have time for that much counseling. All right. He said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, yes, he called his fiance a heifer you would not have found out my riddle. As one commentator said, this was as offensive to her as it is to us. There's only one other place I know of in the Bible that women are called cows, and it's Amos chapter 5, O you cows of Bashan. And that was also intended to be offensive to make a point. He said, if you had not plowed with my heifer, and if you had not gone behind my back, you wouldn't have solved the riddle. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He goes in the power of God, beats up and kills 30 Philistines, takes their clothing, gives them the clothes, and storms out. She is given to one of his companions in marriage. Some time goes by, and now it's time for harvest. And he decides, you know what? I really love that gal, or something. He grabs a goat, which you could probably tear as easy as you might tear up a lion. He grabs a goat and heads back down there. This is chapter 15 of Judges. And he happens upon her house and her dad comes out and goes, what are you doing here, Samson? And Samson goes, I'm here to, you know, see my wife. He goes, well, well you kind of stormed out. It seemed like you were upset, like maybe it wasn't going to work out. So I gave her in marriage to another guy. How about you marry her sister? Just between you and me and everybody who's going to read the book of Judges throughout history, the, the younger sister is more attractive. So now, in like one chapter, this woman has been called a heifer and been told that her sister is more attractive. This is just rude. Nonetheless, Samson said, no, absolutely not. You can't give away my wife. And he says, now I have reason to get revenge. And now he's going to get revenge on the Philistines. Why is he getting revenge on the Philistines? Is it because he loves the Lord and he loves the Lord's people and he wants to deliver them from suffering and he wants a new spiritual renewal in Israel? No, he's mad about his wife. He's mad about his heifer getting handed over to somebody else. So he gets 300 foxes. How did Samson get 300 foxes? He got one more than 299. I don't know. He got 300 foxes. He tied them together in pairs by the tail, secured torches to the tails, right? I know human or animal rights, this is a bad deal, but this is just how it rolls. This is a long time ago. He then lights the torches on fire, and the foxes run around and catch everything on fire. Why would you tie foxes together? If you tie a torch to one fox, it's going to run in a straight line. How do we know this? I have no idea how we would know this. 
If you tie two foxes together, they're going to try and run away from each other because their tails are tied together and run away from the torch that's tied to the other fox and this fox. And they're going to run in a zigzaggy pattern. They're going to catch everything on fire. The idea here is he just wants to, he just wants to burn the place down. And he burns down the standing grain. He burns down the stacked grain. He burns down the olive groves. He burned down the San Joaquin Valley of the Philistines. This is a major economic loss for the Philistines. And they lose their minds. They try to figure out what happened. And they go and they discover that he did this because of what happened to his fiance. So they then go and kill her and her family and burn her house down on top of her. So exactly what the companions said they would do to her is what happened to her and her family. Samson then flees. He runs into the land of Israel. He runs to the place where the tribe of Judah resides, to the cleft of a rock. He's hiding in a cave. And this is what happens if you look with me down at verse 11 of chapter 15. He went and hid in a cave. The Philistines came out. 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of rock. And they said this to Samson. Make sure you're paying attention. How many men of Judah went to see Samson? You didn't read it? Am I going to read it? 3,000. Here we go. How many? 3,000. We got it. Thank you. I heard you, Howard. Here we go. And this is what they said to him. Samson, thank you that God has provided a deliverer to save us from the Philistines, that we can once more worship the Lord in truth and freedom. That's not what they said. Look what it says. Do you not know that the Philistines are ruler over us? What then is this you have done? And he said, as they did to me, so I did to them. They poked me in the eye, poked them in the eye. They said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. The, the people of Judah came to capture the deliverer from God and hand the deliverer from God over to the enemies of Israel. Isn't that crazy? Remember, in the rest of the book of Judges, the people cry out to the Lord and the Lord provides a deliverer. In Samson's occasion, the deliverer comes and the people of Judah don't want him. So 3,000 guys come down to deliver Samson into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson says, you know, that works for me. I'll let you hand me over to them as long as you promise not to kill me. And they say, that sounds good. So they bind his hand with some new ropes and they hand him over to the Philistines. And that's the portion of the scripture that Pat read. When he went out there, the ropes on his arms became like flax that's just been caught on fire. You know, kind of like being lit by two foxes with a torch. They fall right off his hands. He reaches over and grabs a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Where do you find a fresh jawbone of a donkey? In a donkey. That's not fresh. So this is a jawbone. I want you, we always had you need to use our, uh, our, not our imagination, but we need to visualize what's going on in the scripture. That means this jawbone had a bit of protein on it still. This wasn't a nice, dry, hardened jawbone. This was a jawbone he had to get out the donkey. The donkey was there. He wasn't putting up a fight. He hasn't put up a fight in a long time. He's been dead a little while. No honey, stupid donkey. Grabs the jawbone out, shakes off the rest, and then he goes to business, gets to, gets to work. He kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of the donkey, with this fresh jawbone of a donkey. I don't know how you handle a jawbone. I don't know how you kill a thousand Philistines with it. But he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of the donkey and then tosses it aside. Once again, disregarding 
his Nazarite vow. Let's do the math again. How many Philistines were there? A thousand. A thousand Philistines. Trick question. How many men of Judah were there? Three thousand. I'm doing the math here. Did we have enough Israelites to, to do this? See, this is what we're discovering. The people of Israel don't want to get saved. They have the power, in fact, Judah, all throughout Judah's history, starting with Isaac and Jacob, or at least with Jacob, when he offers his blessing on his sons. Judah, you're going to be princes and mighty princes. Judah was always viewed as powerful and always viewed as conqueror and always had uh, the the largest number of fighting men in in Israel. They they were a great and powerful uh, military force. 3,000 of them didn't want to fight 1,000 Philistines because they didn't want the Philistines gone. Everything's good. Let's keep it copacetic. Everything's fine. We don't need the enemy taken away. This was a deliverer who didn't want to save Israel. He just wanted to get revenge for, uh, for his, uh, having his wife taken away. And this is a people of Israel who don't want to get saved. Judah prefers not to get saved, and Samson is sort of... Yeah, whatever, as long as I can get my revenge. Look at Samson's prayer. Pat read it earlier. Let's remind, it, be, remind ourselves of it. He was very thirsty after killing people with a jawbone. It makes you very, very thirsty after killing a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. He says this to God. You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. What did he say? You've granted this great salvation. How? Because I'm awesome. You're welcome. You're welcome, God. You've brought out this great salvation because Samson rocks. So now you're going to kill me a thirst, God, really. If you want a hero like me, God, you've got to keep me alive. Do not let the translation of the English fool you. This is an impetuous, arrogant, self-centered, God, you owe me water prayer. That's what this is. Start to finish, this is not a guy who loves to worship the Lord. You've given me a great victory, but I didn't deserve it. This is Samson saying, awesome sauce needs water. Hook a brother up, God. And what does God say to him? Doesn't say much, but here's what he did. Verse 19, God split open the hollow place at Lehi and water came out. What? God doesn't listen to prayers like this, does he? Does God listen to prayers like this? Like people, God listens to people with a bad attitude? Man, I hope he does. Do you hope he does? Man, I'm glad God listens to prayers like Samson's prayer. I don't know if I've ever prayed a prayer quite like this because I've never killed a thousand men with the jawbone of donkey, but I know I've had some prayers where I was mad. And the person at fault was God. And we're going to have words. And God hears our prayer because this is what we're discovering in samson's life is what we discover in the book of judges what we discover in the whole bible god keeps his covenant he's that good he's that kind now i'm not suggesting you ought to just pray mad all the time that's not the point the point is even in the hardest of times where everything about us and our situation has gotten the best of us god isn't putting hey come back when your attitude is a little better right that's he's not doing that he says i will hear you he can handle it even though Samson was self-serving and arrogant, it is a joy for me, at least, to know that Samson's prayer was heard and God saved him according to his purposes because God honors his covenant promises. Chapter 16, probably the most famous part of Samson's story. He went down to Gaza and he went into a prostitute. 
Uh, now, and there's some kids in here, and we won't get into it, but he didn't go in to play Scrabble. Can we say it that way? At midnight, he gets up because the Philistines have surrounded the house and they want to kill him. And he goes out to the city gate. He tears the gates off the hinges. Hinges. That's how you say that. That's the plural. And he carries the gates to Hebron. Now, Hebron is a long walk from Gaza without gates. It's a long walk to, God, to Hebron from Gaza with gates. And this is just God's power in him. Again, what was Samson up to that night? Well, God can't work, work with a guy who struggles with his flesh, can he? Better hope he can. He overcomes the Philistines, carries the gates up to Hebron. A little bit later, he fell in love with a woman named Delilah. We're being very generous with the term fell in love in this occasion. Last week, we talked about Ruth and Boaz, and we said this. We said th- two things. Number one, it's okay if you want to call Tiny Boaz. Anybody calling you Boaz, Tiny? No. No, he's, he's not yet, right? Okay. Secondly, we said Boaz and Ruth deserved one another, didn't they? Well, they did. They did. They deserved one another. They, they both sought the Lord uh, because of faith. We can also say this of Samson and Delilah. They deserve one another. Two people seeking their own ends, and it becomes the end of each of them. So Delilah is going to use her seductive powers to try and get uh, the secret to Samson's strength. What is the secret of Samson's strength? Right? It seems like it's his hair. What's the secret of Samson's strength? God is awesome. That's the secret of Samson's strength. The secret of Samson's strength, in fact, is not a secret. It's God keeps his covenant promises with his people. So verse 7, she seeks to know the answer. Samson says, if you buy me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been tied, I'll be weak as any other man. She binds him with seven strings while he's sleeping. He's a very heavy sleeper. In the middle of the night, Philistines come in and they try to capture him, but he breaks the bowstrings and beats him up. Goes without saying, they've offered Delilah a large sum of money to find out the secret of his strength. She gets mad at him and he says, okay, fine. Verse 11 of chapter 16, if you bind me with new ropes that have never been used, I'll be as weak as any other man. We already know that's not true. That's what the tribe of Judah did. Philistines jump out at the middle of the night. He snaps the ropes like they're nothing, beats up the Philistines. Delilah gets mad. Next thing she asks, oh, come on, really, tell me. Come on, it'll be great. Tell me, it'll be fun. It'll be our little secret, along with everybody in Philistia. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pin, if you weave my hair into bedsheets... If you weave my hair into the loom, I'll be as weak as any other man. Again, very heavy sleeper apparently, because that night he weaves his hair into the loom. The Philistines come in the middle of the night. He just shakes the loom off his head, beats up the Philistines. All is good, and she gets really upset. Samson doesn't like when the women in his life are really upset. And she keeps badgering him and badgering him, badgering him. Finally, he tells her this in verse 17. Listen very closely. A razor has never come upon my head. Listen, you ready? For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. We learn two things here. Number one, he knew he was a Nazarite. This wasn't information that was kept from him. Second thing, there was nothing about his life that made anybody around him know he was a Nazarite other than his long hair. Because look, if you lived in Israel and you saw a guy with long hair walking around and you said, hey, you want to come into my house? You might, you might double, hey, are you, are you doing a vow? 
Yeah, okay, never mind. We're going to have lunch at the cafe because we had a funeral for my dad this morning at my house. It's unclean. I don't want to ruin your vow. That's what you would do. Or if a Nazarite came over and you could tell from his long hair that he was uh, uh, having a vow, you'd say, are you, do, are you doing a Nazarite dealio? And you say, yeah, I'm doing a Nazarite thing. You say, come on in, let's have dinner. You're not going to serve wine that night. You're going to make sure there's no raisins in the casserole. You're not going to serve grapes on the uh, hors d'oeuvre platter because you want to make sure that this person's vow is intact. That would be what you would want to do. With Samson, you don't see a Nazarite. You see a guy with long hair. That's all you see because there's nothing else about his life that demonstrates he's, he's taken this vow, but he knows that he's a Nazarite. This is information that's not been lost on him. In the middle of the night, she shaved his head, and when the Philistines attacked him, the Bible says not because he had short hair or no hair, he was weak. It says God had left him. Samson said, I don't need you, God. And God said, okay. And they gouged out his eyes, his eyes and put him to work. Later on, they decided to bring him into a great festival and to have him entertain them. So they bring him to the, the, uh, the big place where they're all meeting and they're going to make a sacrifice to Dagon and they, they tell him to entertain them. And so he's coming in and, and probably doing feats of strength, juggling concrete boulders or something like that. And then finally he tells the guy who's leading him around because he's blind, put me next to the pillars. And so then at the end of his life, this is verse 28, his final prayer, really only two prayers in here. Here's his final prayer. Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Okay, first of all, has God strengthened him more than this once? Yes. This guy is completely oblivious or, 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 or in many ways just disregards the work of God in his life. Please strengthen me this once. Oh God, why does he want to be strengthened? that you might be glorified, that your people might be delivered, that, uh, the, that the Philistines might know that the one true God is the God of Israel, right? Something, right? No, that I might be avenged for my eyes. Even in his death, it's all about Samson. Knocks out the two pillars with his strength. The whole thing comes down. 3,000 people die. And the Bible tells us that Samson killed more people in his death than in his life. Samson, at the end of his life, sought not an honorable death to glorify God. He sought merely revenge. Again, let's just be reminded, God uses Samson, even in the depth of his selfish and flesh-oriented moves, to glorify himself by honoring his covenant promises, even with Samson. And we must be reminded, in Hebrews chapter, chapter 11, Samson is mentioned, among others, as one having faith. In fact, summarize that section of Scripture, summarize this way. The world was not worthy of them. I might say, this is just my humble opinion, if Samson wasn't in Hebrews 11, I wouldn't know that I'd write him up as a believer. But the Bible tells us that he was a believer, and such as his faith was, the Bible tells us he was a believer and God honored his faith, not because his faith was great, but because God is great. Samson disregarded God's power. He sought to please his own flesh. He pursued his own desires. Israel also disregarded their need for help. And God worked anyway. That's what our God is like. That's what our God is like. If you get wound up in this 
I need to impress God to get him to do stuff. There's nothing wrong with your life being oriented towards pleasing God. But the reason God's works, the reason God does what he does, the reason God is faithful to his covenant promises is he's just that nice. He's just that kind. He's just that good. Unwanted. A deliverer who doesn't want to save. A people who don't want saving. Just very quickly, and thankfully this is second service, so I have plenty of time. Because that was the first five minutes of the sermon. I'm kidding. I want to I set this properly in the context of, the, of what the Bible is telling us about delivering and deliverers. Primarily this. Samson was a deliverer who didn't want to deliver a people who didn't want to be saved. And we must understand where it fits. Remember, it's the people of Israel living in disobedience, so they need a king. So God provides them a king. How does that work out? It's a tragedy. If you read the rest, it's a tragedy. So we discover a king is not going to fix it. What we need is a savior who can fix our hearts. So Jesus is the culmination of the book of Judges. When the book of Judges ends and says everyone does what is right in their own eyes because there was no king, the answer to that problem is not David. The answer to that problem is David's son. And that is Jesus. So while Samson didn't want to save and the people of Israel didn't want a savior, Jesus, on the other hand, comes to a people who want saving from a different kind of savior. But in the same way, he's unwanted. Remember, Jesus also, like Samson, came at one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Unlike Samson, Samson is a reflection of the darkness of that time. Jesus is not a reflection of the darkness of time because Jesus is not from here. So he is a different kind of savior than Samson. Samson comes to a people as one of those people, a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus comes from somewhere else. God, who has always been and always will be, coming to his people to bring hope and life in him. And what we discover even in Christ is he is faithful to his covenant promises even when people don't want what he's offering. Let me give you quick, three quick examples of people who don't want what he's offering. Luke chapter 5. A guy, some guys bring their friend to be healed by Jesus because the guy can't walk. And they can't get in the house where Jesus is healing because there's such a big crowd. So they lower the, lower the guy through the roof. You know the story, right? You've heard that. And so when the guy gets lowered down from the roof, Jesus says to, this to him. Man, your sins are forgiven. If you were that guy, what would you be thinking? Great. That'll pay the bills. That'll get me up and moving. Thank, thank you, Jesus. Now, thankfully, this guy probably had a better attitude than we did, but the religious leaders picked up on it right away. The, the Pharisees began to say this. Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you question in your hearts? What is easier, to forgive sins or heal a lame man? Which one's easier? Healing the lame guy. That's easier. Because only one person can forgive sins. And who is that? God. So the Pharisees were absolutely right. No one can forgive sins but God. The problem is they didn't realize they were sitting with him. So they were blaspheming because they didn't recognize Jesus as God. So the problem here for the religious leaders, they wanted a savior. But this savior is ruining everything. What good is our religion if he's just running around forgiving people? The whole basis for their religion was do a bunch of good stuff to pay for your sins. 
Now, if God shows up and starts forgiving people, what are we going to do with our religion? We'll make a new one. But either way, you, you should scrap it. The sins are forgiven. The law is fulfilled. There is no longer a need to try and earn your righteousness. So Jesus came offering salvation from sin, and the religious didn't, leaders didn't like it. They didn't want salvation from sin. They wanted a Savior who would show up and reaffirm the structures of their religious system. And this, this Savior was ruining their religion. John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. After feeding them, they want to make him king. Why? Because they want to call him King Buffet. We want a king who can keep us, our bellies full. We want a king that we know we will always have water. We will always have food. Jesus had to hide himself to keep from being made king by them. They then searched him out. In verse 35 of John chapter 6, they finally found Jesus and said, How you doing? And he's like, I know what you want. You want lunch. He said, I tell you what, I'll give you lunch. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Guess what? I'm giving you exactly what you want. If you're hungry, I will answer that question for you. And they said, really, where's the food? He goes, I'm the food. And all of the crowd is going, I'm, I'm sorry, we want to have lunch. And, and you're saying you're the bread of life. And then later on, they're finally going to get right down to it. We know this guy. He's just Joseph's kid. He's not the bread of life. So here's the problem. These people wanted real solutions to their real life problems. We don't know where the meal's going to come from tomorrow. And we need God to show up and make sure that meal's going to show up. And Jesus, we love the word picture. Yes, you're satisfying. Yay. What's for dinner? Listen, we get it, Jesus. You're spiritual and you forgive people. But we got real problems up in here. And you're not solving our problems. This Savior I don't like because this Savior can't fill my belly. And I don't know what your problems are. They're not always for us. Uh, it's not necessarily not having enough food, enough food to eat. But there's all kinds of problems that we would say, if this one problem went away, everything would be okay. If my health would finally get right. If the people in my life would stop being so annoying. If the politics were more aligned with my liking. If my employer wasn't such a lame if my marriage was X, if my kid was this, not my marriage was X, that didn't come out right. You know what I mean? If my marriage was better, if my kids were more well-behaved, if I could get better grades, if I was more successful, if I had more money, I don't know what it is. You say, if I had this, everything would be fine. Or if this would go away, everything would be fine. And Jesus shows up and says, I'll forgive you. Yay, Jesus. Can I get a buck or two as well? How about a meal? How about just, Lord, just pay attention to the problems in my life? Yeah, the forgiveness is great. In fact, I've got an idea, God. If you would take care of these problems, I would be able to be a lot more focused on the stuff you're into. Yeah, we've never prayed that prayer before, have we? So Jesus comes and offers forgiveness of sins, and the people of that time, just like us, say, don't ruin my religion, and let's get practical. I, I need something a little more tangible than I'm forgiven. I need the problems in my life fixed. And you're not going to fix my problems? I need a better Savior than that, Jesus. So Jesus comes to save, and we want a different kind of Savior. Luke chapter 22, verse 24, the, the, the disciples are arguing among themselves about who is the greatest. This is like the Chicago Bulls players who played with Michael Jordan getting into an argument about which of them is the best basketball player. Like, what? Really? You're going to argue amongst yourself with Jesus sitting in the room who's the best? But that's what they were doing. 
They misunderstood the kingdom of God. They wanted a kingdom where they got to be awesome. And Jesus says, listen, the kings of this world exercise lordship and authority, not with you. Let the greatest among you be the youngest. Let the leaders be one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines or the one who serves? Well, it's the one who reclines. I, though, Jesus said, am among you as one who serves. The disciples wanted an awesome leader who they could brag about with their friends and who they could ride on the coattails to awesomeness. And Jesus says, I came to clean toilets. I came to wash feet. I came to die on crosses. I came to hang out with prostitutes. And I came to hang out with people with leprosy. I came to forgive sinners. And the answer is this. This is a great savior, but he's kind of lame. Like this is not somebody we would brag about. So Jesus comes as the Savior he is, the Savior to serve, and we think, well, we want something a little fancier, something a little more pizzazz. Jesus ruins religion. Jesus isn't very practical. And at the end of the day, in many ways, Jesus can be kind of lame. We want a better Savior. Last guy. I realize that I only have 45 minutes. I'm hurrying. Luke 23. Verse 42, Jesus is on the cross. He's got two guys next to him, two thieves. One is mocking him. The other one says this in verse 42 of Luke 23. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember me. What kind of things would you pray about on the cross next to Jesus? I'll give you a couple of things. Jesus, could you get me off this cross? Jesus, could you save my life? Jesus, could you make it hurt less? Uh, Jesus, could you keep my loved ones from seeing this? Jesus, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things. And what does God, would God say to all of those prayers? Jesus, will you save my life? Actually, no, you're going to die today. Jesus, will you make it hurt less? Actually, no, they're, gonna, they're actually going to break your legs later. The hurting hasn't started because then you're going to suffocate. So actually, no, I'm, I'm not going to give you that. Jesus, will you give me eternal life so death doesn't matter? Oh, yeah, I got that. Let's do that. Let's do that. See, the thing about the thief on the cross, all that other stuff, religion, practical fix-its, being awesome, the ship has sailed on all that stuff already. It's gone. He got nothing. All he's got is, I need to make sure when I die, I don't die. Jesus, can you make it so when I die, I don't die? Oh, yeah. See you later. I got, that for, I got that for days. We're all over it. So here's the thief who has lost everything. So he gets that Jesus is everything. The trick is to figure that out, even if we don't lose everything, is by faith to say, okay, even though I got the stuff, it's not my salvation. Even though uh, I, I, I can be kind of religious, that's not going to fix anything. The, the, the thing is for us to have a mentality like the thief even if we're not on the cross, is to recognize what we really need is eternal life from Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Did the thief have any reason to think injustice was being done in his life? Let's say he was a thief, like the worst kind of thief. He stole someone's Amazon gift cards. Now, what's the worst kind of thief? He's just a thief. What is the penalty for thieving? In the Old Testament law, it was you had to pay back, you had to give a sacrifice, and you had to make 
uh, restitution plus a penalty, usually a fifth. I mean, that's right. If you stole stuff, what's happening to this guy? Capital punishment for thieving? I mean, couldn't he have been Jesus? How about a little revenge on the Romans for their unjust unjust, uh, system of um, justice? No. Can you make it so I live forever? Yes, I can do that. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Last verse, uh, Judges 16.28. There's another remember verse uh, prayer. It's from Samson. I just want to compare it with the thief. Oh, Lord, God, please remember me. Strengthen me that I may be avenged. I mean, isn't that an incredible contrast between the thief and Samson? Both of them are about to die. And in fact, both of them have their arms out. The thief says, remember me, Jesus. I'll take life forever. And Samson goes, I clenched fist, clenched jaw to the day of his death. I need my revenge. The people want saving from a different kind of savior, but the thief got it. I'm going to give you, we're going to close with two errors. And I want you to pick your favorite one or a combination of both. Are you ready? Error number one. I'll take that non-answer by no, I'm not ready. Here you go. You're one of these or you're both. Here we go. Error number one. We often think I don't really need saving. Life is pretty good. Sure, I've got some problems, some things I wish were a little bit better. And sure, I, I don't think I'm perfect, but I'm not a murderer. I've done pretty well for myself. I've, all my needs are met. In fact, I have enough to kind of have a little bit of fun on the weekends. You know, what I really need is just a little bit of religion to sprinkle on the, the fairy dust. It's really the, the bacon bits of life is religion. Just adds a little something, something extra to life. Because otherwise, life is pretty good. It's a big error. This is where the people of Israel were. No, everything's fine. We don't need to deliver or don't rock the boat. It's a really scary place to be. Because if we don't understand that we need saving, we will never seek the Savior Jesus is. So that's error number one is we say, well, I don't really need saving. I'm not that bad and life is pretty good. I hope you come to a better reality before the end. Error number two, I need help. I need saving, but sin isn't the biggest problem I've got going on right now. I, this might be a lot of us. So yes, I need help. I need God to show up, but I'll tell you what, I got a top 10 list of things I need God to deal with and sin doesn't break the top 20. If God would fix the real problems in my life, maybe I could actually be focused on the the spiritual stuff he wants me to think about. Error number one, I don't need saving. Error number two, I need saving, but not from the kinds of stuff Jesus is saving people from. The answer to this is this, grace. God meets us where we're at. You and I both are going to be in a mixed bag of sometimes not needing saving and other times needing saving from the wrong kinds of things. The fact is, God is gracious to meet us where we're at. There is no one too arrogant, too rebellious, or too far gone. It's never too late as long as you're on this side of the grass to trust Jesus to save you from your sin. And that's what we need. We need Jesus to save us from our sin and Jesus to make us like him by changing our hearts. Unwanted, a people who want saving from a different kind of savior. God, I just come before you this morning and ask that your grace would be at work on our hearts. I would pray in this moment, God, that you would stir in our hearts to convict us of sin. Those areas in our life where we know our life is not the way you would have it to be. God, I would pray specifically for those of us who are here this morning 
who don't know you, that you might use the power of your spirit to convict us of our need for salvation and forgiveness of our sin, that you would move us to trust you and you alone. God, I will also pray for those of us here, whether we uh, are believers or not, but we really want you to intervene in our life, but it doesn't seem you're interested in the same things we are. God, would you soften our hearts to see that you are a Savior who is good and kind to meet us where we are? Would you give us the joy of recognizing you are exactly the Savior we needed? Would you give us the joy, God, of being those who stay strong to the very end? In Jesus' name, amen.